Galaxy fans, this is Jessica, and we're here with episode 194 of Rule the Galaxy. And today we have a real special treat. We're joined by um, author Stephen Kent, who is the author of How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. And we're so excited to have you, Stephen, to be able to talk all about Star Wars and the conversations that um, it contributes to about our the discourse life. the discourse <laughs> all the discourse so yes. many questions so many things to talk about and um but then in, in between that you know we'll talk about just star wars in general i know that you said that uh, you're not quite up on everything that's been happening in the bad batch but we'll talk generally I, i'd love to hear your thoughts on mm. some of the um, you know, the more recent things that Star Wars has been um, exploring the different eras in terms of politics. So um, I think that we're going to have fun tonight. I think so, too. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica, and Rule the Galaxy uh, listeners. It's nice to nice to talk to you all again. I, it's been been a hot minute, I think, uh, maybe at least a year. So nice were to you, be back. Were you on um, a- after your book had been released? Yeah, I, I I'd have to search search my memory, but uh, yes, I have been on Rule of the Galaxy before, but it has been a little while. Well, good. This is the first time that I'm talking to you. And I yeah. I just finished your book, um, literally about ten minutes ago, listening on I think three times the speed on Audible. <laughs> <laughs> what is what is that like? Is that just like uh, like listening to a Ben Shapiro rap video or something? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, you, you get really good at listening for the keywords. Yeah. Yeah. So, but no, I, I thought that it was, it was just wonderful. You know, if, if, you know, we got listeners out there who you really do enjoy thinking about politics and culture and religion and how um, those kinds of conversations that we see in our daily life are, um, are, are, can be contributed by the media that we consume. Um, I definitely recommend that you check out this book. It is available on Audible or you can get the, the physical copy. Um, yeah, I, I just kind of wanted to ask you, Stephen, a little bit of, of, about the writing of this book. And, you know, the, the one thing that I wanted to ask is, you know, th- through the book, you kind of go through um, kind of looking at different, uh, I, I guess you call them virtues, virtues mm-hmm. that you kind of assign to different characters. So there's, you know, like the first chapter I know is like um, Padme and um, uh, humility and mm-hmm. and things like that and I'm just kind of curious you know when w- was that something that you had always thought about had you al- always had this idea of like tying certain characters to certain virtues or was that something that came later in the process yeah a little bit later in the process actually so as I was sort of ideating um 
you know, the book that became How the Force Can Fix the World, uh, I, I knew that I wanted to tell a story about why Star Wars matters to political conversation, why it underpins sort of, um, you know, uh, Western, Western culture's idea of good and evil, um, you know, since 77, this is just something that's unavoidable. And I, I don't remember exactly when I sort of decided on a, a virtues um, guide, you know, where the, the book takes us through what I believe are the most important seven virtues of Star Wars that apply to democratic life. So living in the free world, what are things that you can get from Star Wars that matter? Their humility, empathy, uh, courage, hope, redemption, balance, and choice or free will. And it wasn't actually till I had a just a DMs conversation with uh, Star Wars podcaster Brian Young about uh, from Full of Sith. And we were just talking very briefly about Padme and Boss Nass. And he sort of like opened my eyes to how that interaction between Padme and Boss Nass on Naboo, where she kneels before him and sort of humbles herself before him and the Gungans, that it was a masterclass in humility and that that kind of display actually has like a lot of moral worth. And I, it kind of hit me and I was like, oh, like that is, that is right. That is right. Why did Padme kneel before Boss Nass? What is about her leadership style that is interesting? And I was like, oh, she's a child queen. Is it just children who think like this? Is it only young people who would be able to humble themselves before arrival like that? Uh, and they just led me down a wormhole. And, you know, seven, seven chapters later, I, I had a book on Star Wars virtues that relate to politics. And uh, that's how the force can fix the world. Love it. We're, we're, if you were able to make the book longer, you know, going beyond these these seven virtues. Are there any other characters that you kind of would have liked to focus on? Well, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think about who I did focus on because uh, number, number one's humility was a focus on Padme. Then the second chapter on empathy uh, zeroed in on two characters, uh, that of Kylo Ren, and then a little bit on Qui-Gon Jinn. Uh, Fear uh, versus courage is kind of all about Anakin Skywalker. Redemption is, of course, sort of about your bad guys in, in Star Wars, Kylo Ren and, and Darth Vader. Um, and then choice, free will, was all about Rey. Uh, I, I, I'm not really sure what character or what virtue I feel like got left on the cutting room floor. I remember that there was going to be a chapter about like Star Wars and foreign policy and like, you know, war and peace. And as the, the book sort of drifted away from being a very explicitly political book, where it was going to originally be about how to think about taxes, how to think about war and peace, how to think about free speech, um, it, it then drifted more towards the moral universe. Um, so I, I don't have a great answer to your question uh, on that, but I, I do feel like I very happily covered every trilogy. And that was something that I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on from a lot of fans who appreciate the absolutism of how the force can fix the world. It's not just original trilogy worship. It spends a lot of time in the prequels. 
it starts in episode one. And so like some, some readers, I went on, on Glenn Beck's radio show to, to talk about the book and he was just making fun of me to my face. Cause he's like, you know, I wanted to read this, you know, read this book in its entirety and it starts in episode one uh, and the Gungans, like, are you trying to make me close this book? And it's like, well, you know, I, I love all of Star Wars. And I also spent time in the, the sequel trilogy with, uh, with Ray and Kylo. So um, it's pretty well-rounded, I think. But it, it also, it did, it did get some hate for that. <laughs> I, I suppose. I, yeah. I would have liked to see a little bit more Clone Wars and, uh, and those I know. kinds of things. Because I think I, that Clone Wars is just rife with the political um, and that was emphasis. That was a mostly a publisher decision. Um, I figured. Because what, what we were really torn on was, if you want to get into the, the weeds of like the politics of Star Wars, particularly public policy, Clone Wars is like your yeah. your go-to. The movies are really not a great go-to source for political um, policy and opinion. Like it, it's really about the moral nexus of, of the galaxy. And there's a little bit, of course, in episodes one and two that, that relates to control and politics and representation. Um, but the Clone Wars is is where you go for all of that kind of stuff. And we made a calculated decision that if you were going to speak to the broader public about Star Wars in a political way, you had to stick to the things that they have seen. And I had to remind myself, like the Clone Wars, Rebels, animated series, that that is much more niche in terms of Star Wars reach. Um, but I do regret not getting to The Mandalorian. And I, I was probably already done with like 75% of the book by the time Mandalorian was really getting popular. And I wish that I had dedicated a chapter to Grogu and, uh, and Dinjarin and, and, uh, that this is the way, I mean, like that, that is a chapter name. It was just a, a real missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah. I, I did figure that that was probably the reason why he kind of shied away from that. I, I've mentioned before that I also work in publishing and I've been part of conversations related to, those kinds of things where it's like you you really got to play to what your audience knows and in this case mm -hmm. when you put out this kind of stuff you kind of have to stay away from that which is a real problem for me because I swear I could write a dissertation on Mandalorian pacifism in the Clone Wars and that's what yeah there was um there was a, a tough choice to make in the redemption chapter on and and I didn't I didn't know what Star Wars message would be for how to solve redemption in our society. So I, I looked at two issues that are in the the, the culture, uh, criminal justice reform and prisons, you know, how we think about, you know, how we treat people who make mistakes and reintegrate them into society. And then, you know, the cancel culture thing. So, you know, witch hunts, uh, whether or not people can, you know, mess up, say bad things, and then like, you know, bounce back from it and still have a, a public life. Um, so I wanted to tackle those two things. And I was like, all right, what does Star Wars have to say about this? Star Wars is a redemption story. Uh, it is about how people go to the darkest of dark and come back. It's about space Nazis becoming, <laughs> becoming good again and coming back to the light. These are great things to to argue um but i wasn't sure how star wars would lend its wisdom to these real world problems 
And it was in the Clone Wars that I found the answer. And so there's only one chapter in which I deviated from the films. And it was to the conclusion of Clone Wars when Yoda goes and, and meets in the, I guess, the, the Force realm with the, the wills uh, to discover how to become a Force ghost and how to live on after death so that he can commune with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and the likes later in, in Star Wars. Um, so that was something that in terms of the canon was so important to explain to people in the book, you misunderstand how force ghosting works. And if I clear this up for you, then we can clarify how Star Wars can solve the redemption problem in society. And it's all about conquering your hubris. Okay. Now with that, with, with that, that moment of talking about Yoda and, and the wills and the fact that he has to fight his dark side. I just have one little piece of beef that I want to yeah. bring up with you. Okay. Because I think that you and I would have very different views on the idea, the Jedi's idea of balance. And I think that this actually trickles down into a lot of different things, including relating to the sequel trilogy, mm -hmm. which I know that, that you have a very favorable view to. And for me, you know, I won't, yeah, I won't even talk about issues of characterization and and even you know politics and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But uh, but for me, I'm surprised that you, um, you know, you you did look at Yoda fighting his dark side, but then kind of I, I think that you do um, characterize the De the Jedi's view of balance as skewed. Correct? I mean, would would you agree with that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Jedi were ultimately wiped uh, off the map uh, by the Sith and the Empire because they were a uh, an order uh, out of balance uh, with what was actually the will of the Force. Um, Yoda in in that that scene in, in the Clone Wars where he fights his shadow self. I mean, this is I think most tied to the Jungian concept, uh, Carl, Carl Jung, the, the uh, psycho psychologist of the, the 20th century, um, about conquering your shadow self. It's it's your dark side. It's your your passions. Some of them maybe your caged wants and desires. It's, you know, it's very heady kind of stuff. But um, this is the idea that once you have recognized what your dark side is, you see that it is real and you acknowledge that it is an equal part of you, not an alien force, not like Cloud Frollo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame who has like a, a lust issue and he views his lust issue as an external force like demons or temptation that is being foisted upon him. But whereas you see those things as part of you, that you are responsible for them and then you must conquer them uh, and show responsibility. Like that is the path for the Jedi to eternal life, not caging the dark side, but seeing it as an equal part of themselves and then controlling it. Uh, that's like, that's the ultimate balancing act. Um, I do think the Jedi were of course an out of balance order. The idea that they were going to bring balance to the force by destroying the Sith, the practitioners of the dark side. That's not balance. That's domination. Um, okay. What's, what's so, your take on that? As a Christian, I read it in, in I, I read a theological kind of view of balance having totally to do with what we would call original sin. Mm -hmm. And this is something that um, for, for me, 
the idea of destroying the Sith is not a form of denom of, of denomination of domination when mm -hmm. they are evil. There is no balance of light and dark if the dark is selfishness. Balance is found when the dark does not exist. But we also know that the dark continues to exist because it exists inside of us. And that's something that, as Christians, we affirm that there, there is that element of, of there's darkness inside us and we have to, you, you know, um, I mean, there's there's the verse in in Genesis about Cain and Abel, where where God literally tells Cain mm -hmm. that that sin crouches like a wolf at your door, and you have to defeat it. And there's a there's a passage in um, let me see if I have it here in uh, you know I'm not I'm not sure if you read the novels or whatnot, but there I I always had this feeling. Some of them I do, yeah. Have you read Master and Apprentice? Uh, I'm halfway through it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm not I wonder if you've seen this part yet, but. Um, this I, I had found, and it was a real confirmation of what I already thought about this this um, particular issue. But it says, um, the Jedi don't have such mystics anymore, Obi-Wan pointed out. We're meant to put aside visions of the future because we can't know whether they'll come to pass. Master Yoda even says such visions can bring a Jedi to darkness. Yes, seeking to know the future can be a form of control, which can lead to the dark side, Qui-Gon said in his deep, resonant voice. From his tone, uh, Obi-Wan knew his master had heard all of all of this from Yoda many times before. And learning the forms of lightsaber combat is a way of preparing for violence. Violence, too, can lead to the dark side. We are entrusted with great diplomatic power, which means we exert influence over many systems. I understand what you mean, Obi-Wan said. Many paths can lead to the dark side. As Jedi, we possess power that average beings do not and never will. Holding power over other beings will always require us to be vigilant against the darkness within us. Our ability to sometimes glimpse potential futures is no more or less dangerous than any other, any of our other talents. And so, you know, mm. th that idea of like darkness within us, for me, I think that the Jedi's view of balance absolutely is the correct view because the only way that you can create some kind of of blank slate some kind of wiping clean of the darkness is to destroy it where it's been given free reign we can't destroy ourselves we can't destroy each and every person but that darkness still does exist within us and it's mm -hmm. the fight within each and every person to decide you know that that idea of like which of the wolves inside you are you going to feed so for, for me yep. i think that like I mentioned that I had a much different take on the sequel trilogy, and a lot of that trickles down from that because for me, I saw Last Jedi, and I hated Last Jedi. I hated it so much; it's never gotten <laughs> any better. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't. I know. You know, we, we, like you, you, you mentioned. Um, I'm not sure if it was in the book or in the uh, the uh, podcast part after the book on, mm -hmm. on the audio version that you talk about you know I think that every Star Wars fan has had one of those moments and I think that it's yeah. funny because in, in terms of the sequels it's one or the other usually it's either you had that moment in Last Jedi or you had it in Rise of Skywalker so you know what we're all we're all united on that front but for me I, I saw Last Jedi as really kind of giving in more to the idea of like there needs to be dark and light it's more mm -hmm. of this dualistic type yeah. of idea that to me, I look at that as, as someone with two degrees in Christian history. I yeah. look at that and I go, dualism, that's a heresy. Yeah, now he, he wants to join the conversation. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, I just to jump in real quick here. Um, I kind of agree with what you're saying about the skewed uh, 
view of balance in the prequels uh, versus the sequels. And you kind of going off of what Jessica was saying here, you look at like in episode one, when the Jedi council was confronted with the possibility of there being a Sith, they said, there's no way that could happen without us knowing. Whereas in the last Jedi, when Ray shows up in Snoke's chambers or his throne room or whatever, he says, I told my apprentice, as you got stronger, the light would, someone from the light side would get stronger as well. Darkness rises and light to meet it. Right. So to me, that was more of a accurate portrayal or belief in balance that the more powerful you get in dark, a equal or more powerful person is going to rise on the light. Yes, to defeat it. Right. But rather than in the prequels where they just said, no, that can't be because we are all knowing and nothing can happen without us. Yeah, but you do know it. that the whole point of the prequels is that Palpatine was literally like right. making they were that they couldn't sense Having it. daily meetings with the Dark Lord of the Sith who was already plotting to take over the entire universe. Yeah. Yes, which is why they were tricked. And they were tricked into a game of that was being played by one person. It's like Palpatine right. is basically Palpatine is basically that Pixar short of the guy playing chess with himself in the park jerry's game <laughs> yes he I, just I, flips I, it around on himself so i completely idea, agree so, so but when idea, your opponent um, doesn't believe that you can exist it also makes it a lot easier this is yeah, um, but, but, they, but they, they don't believe that the, the sith can't exist they just they just had no idea that they were being shielded from knowing that they did exist right? so I that's, think, that's, uh, that's 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 not that's not them having a skewed view of balance that's them you you know using their senses in order to sense the Sith, not being able to sense them, and then parsing that through the the ideas that they already had. If I told you, if I told you there's a purple ghost behind you, and you said, no, 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 I, I don't, I don't sense a purple ghost behind me, that doesn't make any sense to me. And I said, but there is, that doesn't make you wrong or arrogant for not believing me it means that you have a different perspective that I mean, I'm pretty sure that, that Yoda, I, I don't, I don't know in which property he did this. It was either, either the Clone Wars or Rebels when he had a conversation with Ezra, but he has admitted to ego and hubris uh, and uh, arrogance blinding the Jedi Order to the threats that were rising all around them, that they were just completely unable to see past their own noses. So, you know, there's the thing that's really tough here is, is always looking at how do I view morality and the moral universe in the world that we live versus like what story is Star Wars telling? And that one, that's always tough to, to kind of segregate because Star Wars is absolutely just this sort of worldly like take the best of the stoics and the best of buddhism and a little bit of judeo-christian you know wisdom and, and just blend it all together and you sort of just get this sort of hodgepodge uh, dualism type space religion um and i i do believe that the uh the star wars view of balance or at least the jedi view of balance um got to be to a point where the the sith could not operate in the galaxy dark side you know practitioners were not allowed to function and their view of balance was that the light is dominant across the galaxy now the dark the problem with making room for it 
is, and this was going to be the foreign policy chapter that I, I never wrote, was that when you allow darkness uh, to exist, it festers, it grows, it is a cancer. Um, the nature of the dark side is hunger, want, and greed. It is it is self-satisfaction, and self-satisfaction only snowballs, it only grows. So if you allow the dark side to exist uh, without some sort of like, you know, external force suppressing it, it will grow to be out of your control. <laughs> then, then, is... why, then why do you think that the view is skewed? Because to me, mm -hmm. it, to me, it all comes down to how, like, it, it's when people look at the the Jedi destroying the Sith, bringing balance. Mm -hmm. To me, it makes absolute total sense. You have to destroy the evil that exists. So do you, so, so, so in your view, what is a view of balance that the Jedi should have espoused instead? I don't know. I mean, I think the the place where Luke was at in The Last Jedi, where he's talking to Rey on the island about the nature of the light and the dark side as it pertains to like the circle of life and, you know, pain and and death and life and warmth and cold on the island all of those things sort of living in symbiosis, this sort of, you know, very Eastern hippy dippy kind of a view of what the force all is, that it is all valid and it is all real. It is all the force like that, I think, is the ideal, the like the Star Wars moral ideal. It's very similar in a lot of ways to the way The Last Airbender, Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, talks about uh, balance in the universe. Um, I don't I don't know if I have a great answer for that. Okay. Yeah. It's definitely stuff to think about. I mean, my 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 thoughts on Last Jedi is you know that 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 part specifically is that you know that reminds me of the Bible verse where it's like for everything there's a season. Like mm -hmm. there is balance, but for me, I don't see those things as one and the same. The the view the view of balance in terms of good and evil versus the balance of the way that life works. I view those as two very different realms where like I think that the reason why I disliked Last Jedi is it tries to make those two one and the same. And yeah. to me, it's like, well, death itself isn't evil. And Are you even... telling me that our society thinks you could have your cake and eat it too? <laughs> like that's that's where our culture is at. Like basically our, our the arbiters of our high culture basically want to tell everybody you can do whatever feels good as long as you don't hurt people. You know, everything's good. You can have everything that you want, be anyone who you want to be. Um, and that's very much how you get to the gray Jedi ideal in Star Wars being realized in mm. the sequel trilogy. Uh, and that's why the gray Jedi concept was always so popular because most people want to be a little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and so they don't want to sign up for the the oh. Sith the Sith character the Jedi character they want to be interesting and an interesting person is a little bit of both <laughs> you know what I mean like it's just it's just kind of blasé and and boring but people think it's interesting. I guess I understand that. I would also point out that gray <laughs> Jedi are not canon at all. No, but but they they always were in the the head canon. I think of your average fan. The gray Jedi became in the early two uh, thousands like a thing that people talked about, and it was realized in the sequel trilogy, but not by name. Um, but that's I, my problem with it. That's why I didn't like it because for me, I look at that and I go, if the dark side is selfishness if the dark mm -hmm. side is if the dark side is 
is giving into those things that are not good, then I look at that and I go, it doesn't matter if you're 99% good and 1% bad or 50-50, the presence of that darkness isn't better than if it's not there. And it's 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 mm-hmm. different from it's different from saying something like, oh, if you're just hundred percent good, like take take the take the person, whoever you think the best Jedi is who represents the light side. Qui-Gon Jinn. Great. <laughs> just just because just because he represents all that is good doesn't mean that, for example, he doesn't take care of himself. I think that some some people get this idea of like, oh, well, if you're completely and totally selfless, then you like it, you, like a person can't live that way. Well, no, mm-hmm. self care is just as much selfless because you are you are making it possible for yourself to continue to sacrifice for others. So mm-hmm. the idea of like, oh, taking care of yourself, not thinking of others, like that's not selfish. That's just self care but it makes you able to continue a lifestyle that is self-sacrificial, but it's still representative of only being in the light. And that's the thing is that like, it's, it's the pursuit of the light, knowing that we have darkness in us, but continually choosing every single day to not indulge it. And there's, I, 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 mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I, I guess I don't want to read this quote because the other quote from Master and Apprentice yeah. is, is kind of the Do one it. that's- Read oh, it. Do you think so? Yeah, yeah read um, it. Um, let, let me see. Um, so, so this is near the end and it's kind of the, the quote that the book is known for. And I just think it's my favorite quote of any books and maybe even of the saga itself. Um, it says, it matters which side we choose, even if there will never be more light than darkness, even if there can be no more joy in the galaxy than there is pain for every action we undertake, for every word we speak, for every life we touch, it matters. I don't turn toward the light because it means someday I'll win some sort of cosmic game. I turn toward it because it is the light. <laughs> and that's Qui-Gon. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's Qui-Gon. No, it's so, Qui-Gon's, Qui-Gon's the best. Um, yeah. What were you, you going to say? No, that's, that's just, uh, you know, I, I, for me, like, I just read that and I go like, like, that's it. That's the essence of Star Wars, especially as you're reading it in light of, of, I mean, we always think about me, Star Wars as being like centrally planned by by Lucasfilm and and the, the the story group and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's so interesting to me that Star Wars cranks out sort of like competing views like in within itself of like really what the force is about. And mm-hmm. that's because we're talking about different characters. Yeah. Qui-Gon is Qui-Gon is not Luke Skywalker. And you may have like of course a different writer like you know Claudia Gray like writing Master and Apprentice and a different person coming up with the mythology of The Last Jedi but I like to believe that it does ultimately all run through like a couple of people who decide this is appropriate for Star Wars and this isn't and it's all it's all there like it's a very very wide moral universe with a lot of different philosophers operating in the galaxy who have different views um and Qui-Gon in in that that quote like I resonate with that I think that's absolutely true and that they're searching for the truth of what the force is, just like we're in this world trying to search for the truth of our existence in God. Um, and, and we debate and we debate about it. We <laughs> and we disagree all the time. I, I just I, I think of this this issue in Star Wars of of balance as being where the Jedi and the Sith are are practicing religions um, where they have a very totaling 
totaling view of what is and is not valid for you to practice to live a, a fulfilling life. The, the Sith believe in self-indulgence at all times, the dark side, dark side, dark side, do whatever feels good and it will make you powerful. It will break your chains and make you free. And the Jedi are, are really practicing, you know, I think really like this sort of stoic abstinent ideal of, uh, of, not not recognizing and dealing with but like suppressing emotion and abstaining from certain things so that you don't then have to deal with temptation and i think the balance is usually found in recognizing that the negative emotions the pain the wants um the the lust that the things that you might feel that they are not alien outside forces they are part of you and as soon as you recognize that, then you can start to deal with it in a constructive way rather than in a blamey sort of way. And I think that's sort of what tricks people into falling into the dark when they're able to shirk responsibility for the darkness within them. I, I don't know if that makes any sense the way, the way I articulated it, but when we stop thinking of the dark side as an outside alien force and equal to us, then we're able to conquer it. And I, I don't think that's what the Jedi did. Okay. Any other thoughts on, on that in general, Alfie? No, I'm just sitting here listening to you two. This this is great. This is this is the most in depth uh, interview I've ever gotten on this. So yeah, this, all is, right. this is this is fantastic. Uh, Jessica Jessica Johnson has won the game. Yes. <laughs> the last time I was on here with Jessica and an author, I, I, I was out of it too because she's just great at this. Oh, you're so sweet. Um, I, I will also mention I really appreciate you are the first person to bring up what um, always gets missed in the conversation about the moment in Re in revenge of the sith um where anakin says either you know you're you're with me or you're my enemy and obi-wan mm -hmm. says only a sith deals in absolutes and everybody 20 years ago and today it's all a postmodernism thing and i just it, it drives me yeah. nuts because yes postmodernism was kind of a a buzzword especially for conservatives 20 years ago yeah <laughs> but it's not about that and you bring it to the political roots which is bush saying you're either with us or you're against us and you know in 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 this political sphere and from to me that's the essence of that moment because it is not it, it is not about making it some kind of philosophical statement about about there can't be any absolutes it's about saying there's so much more gray than you're either for us or against us. There has to be this recognition that I don't, I don't agree with you, but I still love you. And Anakin's inability to be able to see that Obi-Wan still loves him, still supports him, but cannot stand with him in this moment. I think that mm. that's, that's even, that's, that's yes. even, that's even more applicable now when you talk about things like cancel culture and this this world where we're so willing to divide ourselves into these spaces that say you're either for my side or you're actively working against it's because my side. that's because we're having this this cultural debate right now about truth identity and validation and yeah. We are in this peak moment of live your truth as sort of the, the cultural good. And what that requires, and I'm going to try to put this 
um, put this in the way that I, I would like <laughs> is that when we hold up as a, a societal good that people should live their version of the truth or live their truth, they are going to move through the world and their opinions about themselves, their opinions about things outside of them, um, their view of their identity and what they are, it becomes them. Their, their view of the world becomes who they are because they are living their truth. And so then when you attack somebody's opinion and you're having a debate about somebody's views or you question somebody's supposed identity of, of whatever kind, like whether, you know, it's like their, their class, their race, their gender, whatever you attack their, their anything you are attacking them. And when we roll up all of our views and our truth in our political opinions, they become inseparable. And so then you just get this total war situation where we used to have political debates, but I wasn't debating your humanity. I was exactly. saying that you are wrong about taxes. <laughs> I wasn't debating your humanity. I was just saying these books don't belong in these schools. <laughs> and now, now they're all intertwined because we are not debating issues. We're debating what people people think are like their existence. Um, and it didn't used to be that way. So we have to be wondering like what changed in the culture that now we're debating that. Well, and I, I really appreciate this book because I, I like that you do kind of lay out where your own allegiances lie. Um, you know, just in, in bits and pieces, we get, you know, little moments where you, you let the audience know you know what you identify as in terms of your your political or religious yeah. belief. Yep. Yeah. And and I I appreciate that like we can kind of come to this book on that footing. There are you know like for me you know I was raised in a very conservative home. I I was raised as an evangelical Christian and still identify in that way. Went to two evangelical schools, which ironically actually kind of pushed me way far liberal in a way that my parents never expected. And and so what what I think is really interesting is that there's a lot in your book that, you know, I, I mentioned this before we started recording that like, I just, I read the book and mm -hmm. could just feel like, okay, this is a person who thinks about the world in very, very similar ways that I do. And yet there were still many, many times where like, I, I looked at a way that you described a certain cultural mm -hmm. touchstone and, you know, definitely in, in my view would have really pushed back against the way that you described it. There's tons of differences. It's Good. all about whether, yeah, exactly. It's all about whether or not we can come to these conversations and say, we have different views. We all have a reason for those views. Where can we find the, the common ground and the common good as we sort through them. And I just don't know what we can do to, you know, I, I don't want, I don't want to have a look back 20 years ago or, or even, you know, just kind of the pre-social media mm -hmm. days and just say, Oh, can we just get back to that? I mean, there were, there were divides back then too. I mean, you self sort by reading different newspapers, um, you know, even before, even before cable news, that was an issue. I mean, even I, as, as a historian, I know that, I mean, this was, this was something that was being done in the Revolutionary War. Different newspapers would crop up and, and. Yeah, it, the partisan it, it, press, yeah. The partisan press, it, it, it's, yeah. it's just kind of a natural thing, but how do we get back to a place where we're at least able to I guess, tolerate each other enough to be able to have these conversations on ground that doesn't resort to your disagreement undermines my identity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think the, the chapter on balance was my attempt to get at that a little bit. Um, and it is all about making space for people to live out. Um, I don't want to say live out their truths, uh, but live out their versions of the good. Um, and we do have a a constitutional order in this country that allows for such things to exist. Uh, the problem is that power has become so centralized in our country, particularly in the past 100 years, uh, where we are now in a constant all against all conflict to get control of the Death Star being Washington, D.C., the White House, the Supreme Court, where, you know, if we have an election, a wave election that goes in one way, people feel like their lives are under threat. You, you, we've seen it in every election, at least for the past four cycles, um, where all chill is lost. And that shouldn't be the case. Like we should really have very little care about who ends up in the White House or on the Supreme Court. But because the power has gotten to be so great, gosh, I mean, like you feel like the rebels uh, knowing that the Death Star is coming into your your star system. It is either we storm the cockpit in the Flight 93 analogy, uh, or we take out the Death Star immediately in self-defense. Um, and that's what happens when you have massive power being pointed at your direction. So I, I I hate to like make the the classical small C conservative or libertarian point, but the only way to the only way to turn down the temperature is to to dismantle the piece of the Death Star that people find so threatening. Um, you know, if if Trump were to get reelected again in 2024, the only way to limit his power is to make the federal government powerless. <laughs> and that's like that should be what we want. Uh, I do believe that one day we are going to go more towards uh, a very decentralized federalist system, maybe even like a city-state type system in the future. I think that that's going to come back, uh, mark my words. Uh, I mean, but... <laughs> you know, what What else can you do when you've already got people calling for civil war? I mean, I think that, you know, reading your book was kind of an interesting thing because it's so recent. And yet I spent a lot of time going, I wonder what he would put in here if it if it was updated for 2023. Yeah. And you know, when when we're dealing with a war between Russia and Ukraine, we're dealing with our our political divides, which in America have placed different people on different sides of the Russia-Ukraine issue. Mm -hmm. We've got we've got people who are literally calling for a natural a, a national divorce. And I kind of go, it, 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 as a historian, it reawakens the question in my mind that I've always had related to Star Wars, which is, is Star Wars more like the American Revolutionary War, mm -hmm. or is it more like the American Civil War? Because they're two very different mm -hmm. things, depending on the way that you view the separatists and their views. For me, I look at it and I go, the separatists complained all of the time that they weren't having representation in the Senate mm -hmm. and that because they were so far away from the core worlds, they also weren't reaping the benefits of being part of the Republic. Yep. And so to me, I look at it and I go, to me, it sounds more like a revolutionary war type issue of no taxation without representation mm -hmm. and wanting to have their own identity. Whereas, you know, now 
it, it kind of brings up more parallels in terms of, well, if, if you are a united republic, whatever that looks like, then what do you do when half of your republic wants to separate? And these are questions, it, it, it struck me that you, you, drew, you drew a parallel to growing up in the early 2000s and how the prequels were premiering at the same time that all of these same questions were being yeah. asked this this idea of you know a, a congress being willing to give their leader all of these emergency powers of a war that was based on a lie and and all of these things and, and i just wonder is it going to become that relevant again have you um have you ever in the early so because you mentioned the early 2000s and i just finished it for the the fourth time tonight have you ever watched the early 2000s show jericho starring skeet ulrich no yes. so yeah so jericho is uh from like i don't know like 2005 i think uh just sort of like in the the heat of the war on terror and and the war on iraq this is like a CW type show. I mean, it's like the same kind of production quality as Gilmore Girls. It was network television, but it was a um, a show that takes place in Kansas, a little kind of conservative town. And then all of the major U.S. cities are all blown up in nuclear uh, attacks. And so this town in Kansas is trying to figure out how to survive in the wake of the devastation, reorder society, all this kind of stuff. Over the course of the show, there's only two seasons because it was canceled. Um, you find out that uh, military contractors, mercenary companies, uh, which we're very familiar with um, from, from the Iraq war and Afghanistan, um, colluded with corporations to basically form a government of their own corporations backed by military contractors to attack the United States and then become the new government. It, it, it was the ultimate corporatism Inc. show. And it was cast as conservative, you know, uh, red state Americans like fighting back against corporations in the middle of the Iraq war. Like this show was such, it was so before its time because it was speaking to the same thing that George Lucas was talking about in the prequels with the trade federation and corporatism. But the Republican party was still very much the party of Mitt Romney and Bain Capital and Wall Street at that time in the early 2000s. Uh, fast forward 20 years, the divorce is, is, you know, completely been worked out in the Trump era. And now Republicans are, are very woke about corporatism and that there is a genuine threat to the constitutional order from Wall Street. And that's a very interesting, very interesting change. Uh, and when I think about like, the prequels and, and the, the trade federation and the separatists, it just sort of reframes the entire subject for me. Um, I've, be, I've grown more and more sympathetic to the separatists over time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that I'm the same where like, I, I really appreciate the, the very few moments in the Clone Wars where we get looks into the separatists with Mina Bonteri and Lux Bonteri um, but then specifically, and you know, I just I find a way to mention her every time I come on. My Satine is my girl, and so for, for me, for me, uh -huh. there's a there's a moment in the Clone Wars that does not get talked about ever, but it is the most important moment, and it's the fact that Satine on a neutral Mandalore actually brings together Republican separatist um, um, 
representatives with the intent of having peace talks and these actually are officially officially sanctioned including by the senate and thus by palpatine which is really interesting when you think of like she's working toward negotiation that actually could make a difference and it is so quick it's literally like the first two minutes of a episode that doesn't even relate to that topic but i think that um that idea of just really trying to emphasize that there are ways other than war that can result in you know the 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 outcomes that you want you mentioned in the book uh, i can't remember exactly what the wording is but that politics is arduous when it's working properly politics is mm-hmm. a lot of compromise it's a lot of of concession it's a lot of people leaving the negotiating table not being happy it's unsatisfying it's unsatisfying and and anakin doesn't like that anakin is the one who says that we should just have somebody who arbitrates everything and padme says like who's gonna do that you anakin's anakin's the everyman you know like most people i don't know when you realized this jessica uh but i realized it after after january 6th that I should reevaluate the assumption that most of my neighbors just love democracy. democracy. Like, yeah, like yeah. why why would they? You know, why would they? Especially if like every election they feel like their lives are being upended or threatened. You know, most most people would prefer quote unquote stability, regular order, you know, things being predictable. That That is like the human condition. What we do here in the United States is actually really, really radical where we just allow the flipping of the table every, every couple of years, uh, but it is part of what makes us free. Uh, Anakin, I now accept as being like a pretty normal person who goes, yeah, like I would actually just prefer to get everybody together in one room and have a wise and enlightened individual like George Lucas mentioned that he would prefer a a benevolent despot, um, you know, sort of showing his cards as well, um, that that would be a good way to run a society. I think most people feel that way. They just assume it will be one of their people. (laughs) And and that's the problem. That's the problem is that I, I think that you're absolutely right that people don't actually like democracy. And what we and I think that what we've seen on 100%. Both, both sides of the the aisle, but to me, I see it a lot on the Republican side, is that there's been a lot of people who have paid a lot of lip service to democracy, but as soon as they start to feel that they're losing cultural capital, then mm-hmm. that that push towards authoritarianism is very strong. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I I think that I have a good ability to see both sides. Like I said, I, I was raised in a really conservative home. I understand the ideas, like the, the reasoning why people hold conservative ideals. Personally, I consider myself to be like, if, if in a perfect world, I would be a libertarian, but I don't mm-hmm. think that it actually can be borne out in the mm-hmm. real world. And so for me, I skew more liberal now because I think that there are things that we need to address that have, hasn't been addressed. Are you like a social Democrat? I really I just really can't (laughs) figure out what my label is that's okay um but for me it's all about integrity and again I'm going to bring it back to my girl Satine because I think that if I had been writing your book I Mm -hmm. would have I would have had and if I if I could have you know uh, dove into the Clone Wars I would have done a chapter on Satine and integrity Mm -hmm. because it's it's her that I think 
she's the one who's willing to rise above those partisan politics and and she's the one there's there's a, there's a line in the first episode that she appears in where she and obi-wan are talking and obi-wan they're, they're debating about what a peacekeeper is and obi-wan says a peacekeeper belongs on the front lines of conflict otherwise he couldn't do his job and obviously that represents his own um yeah. experience and then she says the work of a peacekeeper is to make certain that conflict doesn't arise and he says that mm. that's a noble description but it's not a realistic one and she says is reality what makes a jedi abandon his ideals or is it only a response to political <laughs> convenience oh that's so good and that's that is, where that that's is so good that to me i have used that line yeah. in political debates because for me it's all about integrity do you say you love democracy or do you just love it when your your party is in power do you just like the um you know you know um voting and and are you um oh shoot um no i i the the, 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 the um I, I am just blanking on um, the, the, the issue of um, the electoral college. That's the word. Um, right. do, do, you, do you just do you just find yourself for or against the electoral college based on whether or not it helps your side? Or do you actually have a reason behind why you think the electoral college should exist? Because yeah. I because I have yet to find someone who finds themselves firmly on one side of the political debate. Yeah, we, we were having no conversation about reforming uh, the Supreme Court until Ruth Bader Ginsburg died uh, and Kavanaugh ended up on the court as well, like all in the course of like two years. You know, the, the Democrats like leap over themselves to, uh, oh, we need to expand the size of the court. Oh, and then in the Atlantic and the Washington Post, we also need pieces saying why the Senate needs to be dissolved. <laughs> like, you know, real, real takes that like just came out of a political threat. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our power is threatened. What if we were to dissolve the Senate as an institution? <laughs> These are conversations you have when you're losing. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we should all be able to like see through it and go, yeah, like these institutions, these political parties, they change the rules when they're losing. Uh, and we should be able to like name it, shame it, see it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's all about power. So then in that, especially when it comes to our leaders, you know, I, I think about, well, well, first off, you know, I, I think that there is something to be said on the, you know, the difficulty when we're in situations like with COVID, you know, so many people on the conservative side saying that the government overstepped boundaries, other people on, on um, the left saying that they didn't go far enough. You know, I, I do think that, you know, there needs to be some humility in terms of recognizing that I, I just look at leaders who are faced with making those decisions and mm -hmm. I don't, I don't envy them at all. You yeah. are never going to make everybody happy. A, a governor trying to to make rules for his or her state is never going to make everybody happy in terms of living in an urban environment versus a rural environment. So, you know, I think I think that we really need to have some humility when it comes to just not knowing. But when it comes to those leaders, you know, you, you make a couple mentions in the book, you know, re regarding the media, politics, and the politics of fear. And the fact that so many politicians, regardless of what side you're on, they market in fear because that's what gets the outrage. That's what gets the support. That's what gets people rallied together. So 
my question is, can leaders have integrity? And can politicians actually exist in ways that don't deny the reality of a situation, mm -hmm. but also don't fear monger and lead people into cycles of outrage? Well, I, I mean, I think of Barack Obama as being a, a pretty a pretty great example of a person who who rolled into the White House not once but twice uh, on uh, the hope message and on raising the bar and you know he he of course like any politician like slipped into moments of you know polarizing and pointing fingers at at thems and theys and all that but like you know he was the we are not red and blue America. We are one America guy. Um, and he was the hope and change candidate who elevated the conversation. I, I lived through it. I was there. And now we're living in the years after. And you go, okay, like that was the last taste of that kind of politics we're going to get for a while. Uh, so the answer uh, is, of course, yes, um, that is possible. Uh, but it is incredibly unnatural and I, I don't think intuitive um, for what politics is all about. Um, the incentive structure in our culture and again with media right now uh, is to drive fear, polarization, um, and negative polarization. So getting people excited about what they're against more than what they're for. And that is not a, a naturally occurring phenomenon. This is the way that our information economy is being actively designed and built every single day by moneyed interests. And I, I never thought that I would use language like that because, you know, I come from the right and I, I'm supposed to love moneyed interests. <laughs> but like, you know, we're, we're 10, you know, 15 years into this social experiment and we see how this is going. Um, and and that's, that's the way that it is. So um, I always try to like, come back to like a, a Star Wars example when I'm talking yeah. about this stuff. So I don't, I don't get too lost in the, in the news cycle, but um, you know, the, the fear chapter is all about how much are you willing to just let go of control when you have a bad feeling about something there, there are two prime examples in Star Wars of where fear ends up harming uh, a Jedi uh, or setting them off their path. Of course, it's Anakin Skywalker and his visions of death, his mother, and then Padme, and then him doing, you know, whatever is needed, including killing the younglings to, to save Padme from death. And then it's Luke Skywalker, a little bit less dramatic, but he wants to save Han and Leia from suffering on Cloud City in episode five when he's training to be a Jedi with Yoda and Dagobah. And, you know, Yoda tries to tell him, you know, always in motion the future is, you know, you can't actually predict these things. You know, it might be that the dark side is just, you know, in your head kind of, you know, tricking you and all this kind of stuff. He didn't say that, of course, but the point was you, you don't know what's going to happen. It turns out a lot of times it's self-fulfilling prophecy, people's fears, and then their rashness in their desire to control things and stop bad things from happening creates the bad thing that they were afraid of. And then they can always blame someone else. <laughs> they can always blame other people for how, why it went wrong. Luke, of course, leaves his training early and he goes and loses his hand. And Han was already shipped off in carbonite and Leia was fine. So his dark side vision of a bad future 
was wrong. He probably should have done nothing. He should have stayed on Dagobah. Um, he should have stayed there. He should have finished his training. And like, yeah, I, I don't think that that gets brought up enough that, you know, I think that everybody yeah. looks at it like, oh, he did the right thing going there. It's yeah. like, I, I love that mm -hmm. you mentioned that. No, it, things would have been fine if he hadn't gone. And the thing is, is that I'm not convinced that he was ready to know that Vader was his father at all. He would have saved himself that he would have continued his training. And, and I mean, isn't that always like, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, the it, fact that like, we, we want to believe that Luke is the hero. We want to believe that he's right. But ultimately there are a lot of moments in Star Wars where the, the point. He is the hero, is, but he's wrong. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and the point in that moment, which I don't, I don't know if, like why people yeah. don't pick up on this more often, but in that moment, Yoda and Obi-Wan were right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, um, they, they were right. Uh, they were, they were right about Luke not he shouldn't leave, that he wasn't ready, and that he was going to fall right into the, you know, Vader and the Emperor's trap um, to give him information that he wasn't ready for. They were completely right about that. Uh, they were, of course, wrong about Darth Vader being redeemable. That was the thing where, where he showed up, Yoda and Obi-Wan, where he proved that you should not ever give up on somebody and that he is not more machine now than man. He's still Anakin Skywalker. Um, but of course, the way that this always goes, self-fulfilling prophecy, like Star Wars, and particularly the prequels, is happening during the War on Terror, a time where we're all afraid and we want to go out there and fight the unknown and make sure that we're never hurt ever, ever again. And so the United States builds a security apparatus and um, security terminals at every airport. The Department of Homeland Security is born from scratch. Most people don't even know that. You ask people that, I pulled this actually in my work. Like most people think the Department of Homeland Security has been around for a hundred years. And like, it was born like no. 20 years ago in the war on terror uh, people. Um, and now of course you complain about uh, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security being weaponized and targeting domestic political groups and policing domestic political conversation. Y'all, like, the only people who were warning about this in the early 2000s were civil liberties Democrats and libertarians. Republicans yep. were all were all on the war train. Corporate Democrats were all on the war train. Uh, but the civil liberties crowd and libertarians were all going, y'all, this war on terror thing is going to be a war on us. It's just a matter of when. Um, so, you know, yeah, we're going to we're going to find demons out overseas or we're going to find them here. Like this is what fear does to people. Um, and then there's an alternative vision. Let go. Like yeah. there is there is an alternative vision, and this is what politicians cannot do, and it's what Anakin could not do. When it's sorry, this is an abstract point, but I'll I'll try to make it. I mean, when when Yoda tells him that you have to train yourself to to learn to let go of everything that you fear to lose. Imagine a politician telling the parents. Uh, who are afraid of a, a school shooter coming to their kid and, and murdering their children, y'all, you need to learn to let go of your, your the fear of your kids being lost. Uh, imagine how that person's election is going to go if your response to people's fear, which is, is these are outlier events, right? Like school shootings, they they happen a lot and like way too much for us, but they're like, they're outlier events in terms of harm that can come to your children. Politicians cannot tell people that. They cannot tell them, actually, your child is probably in the safest place that they could possibly be, um, which is out of school. Uh, that is statistically true. 
but that is not how politics works. Um, so we've got this choice as a, as a culture to make of whether or not we want to pee, have people tell us the things that we're afraid of is true or have people tell us uh, tough truths, which is that there's dangerous things in the world, bad things happen, they're not as common as you think, and you need to learn to chill. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, live live the Jedi way. <laughs> I, I wish that we could understand that more. You know, like like you said, that that this pendulum swings back and forth, and that it's that's that's a that's the a feature of our democratic republic. It's not mm -hmm. a bug when we go from conservative to liberal. Yeah. that's the whole point. And that and that and that the idea of every president is going to be in some way a reaction to the previous president, whether it's someone who's trying to further the previous person's agenda mm -hmm. or react against it. And we need to do everything that we can to protect our civil liberties and ensure that we quash rises of authoritarianism because that's the threat to democracy. The threat to democracy is not the pendulum swinging back and forth as we put the put these decisions in the hands of the voters. Yep. So yep. in your yep. It, it, yep. Now I was just going to say the the tools the tools you give to the powerful today are the tools the powerful will use against you in twenty years, uh, the stuff you cannot predict. Yeah. So so then in that case, regardless of of um, political allegiance, do you see anyone? Do you see any polit politicians, you know, in local government, federal government at all? Is there anybody that you admire for these kinds of things? Is there anybody that you recognize as having at least some measure of integrity that you wish other people would take note of? Oh man, I just I just want to punt on uh, you know Obi Wan Kenobi. Uh, she's a politician; they are not to be trusted, and uh, and they are not. Uh, they are not to be trusted. Um, so the only ones that I can think of are ones that have left office. Um, you have left Congress because they realize it's not a constructive place to do work. I look up to to Ben Sass, who's now moving down to the University of Florida, um, former Republican U.S. Senator, uh, and then of course Justin Amash, Republican House member who uh, lost his reelection bid in Michigan, and now is just on the outside, uh, just trying to press for reform to the office of Speaker of the House. That's kind of his main his main political project is to have Speaker of the House reform, um, and he's a guy of integrity. And he spends his time discoursing uh, with liberals on the things that they are right on when it comes to civil liberties and chiding Republicans on all the ways in which they have uh, petty authoritarian instincts. Um, so I, I would say Amash and nobody who's in Congress is someone who I look up to. <laughs> wow, that's... Sorry. <laughs> oh, it's hard. It, 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 it's something that, you know, I, I've never been in a place where I've chosen to pursue political office but mm -hmm. it's one of those things where it's like ah oh, you know in another life I could I I think I could have done that yeah but I, it is it, it's hard like I I don't know if you can do it is it you know it, it it doesn't shock me that there have been whole Christian traditions that have completely said you must distance yourself from government and society because it it cannot lead to anything good. No, it's not a kingdom on earth. It's a kingdom in heaven. And you know, you've you've got this uh, this warring these warring instincts. Where I think uh, I, I don't I don't want to de Star Wars if I your Star Wars podcast. But I think 
you know, the 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 far left like progressive project is a, a utopian heaven on earth project. <laughs> and then the conservatives, they have, you know, a, a little bit more of an anchor, particularly today to the church than than the progressive movement does. Um, and they, you know, they they say that they are trying to point us towards, you know, again, like tradition, connection with God, um, you know, life and the afterlife and all that stuff, but like still trying to grab the reins of power in a world that is not meant, you know, for, for godly things and not meant yeah. for the good. And so, yeah, I mean, like you're, you're fighting to preserve something that maybe, yeah, maybe you should be Brexiting or exiting from this system um, altogether. I, I think that's why conservative Christian writer, Rod Dreher uh, wrote uh, the Benedict option, which was, you know, the only thing left for Christians to do is, exit society and live in communes <laughs> so you know i mean i'll tell you what there is something to be said about the idea of kind of you know withdrawing and you know maybe we need our own jedi temple <laughs> yeah maybe so um and our our founding text will be how the force can fix the world um, <laughs> That will that will available be available at yeah. available whenever books are sold the organizing scriptures <laughs> Oh, so good. I think that that's a good place to to wrap up. Uh, Alfie, any other thoughts? Not really. I've just enjoyed listening to you too. It's been great. This is a this has been such a privilege. I I, I just want to thank you so much. I I actually had no idea what kind of conversation we we're going to be having tonight. I thought we were going to like gab about the Mandalorian, and um, I, I'm just so glad we got to go deep on on some of these issues. And uh, I, I used to host beltway banthas um for like four years and every episode we did was you know politics and star wars it didn't matter if we went off the rails you know for 20 minutes on politics it would come back to star wars and that was what the show was all about and i've been thinking about it so much lately i just miss it uh and this was um this was really special. So thank you. Thank you for like yeah. allowing this space to have this conversation. I, I hope your audience is like, you know, forgiving and patient with it as well. Um, I know this can be agitating to some people. <laughs> I had listened to your book before the first time you were, you were on, which I had to miss. So I had just really been anticipating listening to you talk about this. That's why I didn't try to jump in so much. Now you should just I listen really to Jessica. It. She has her, she has her act together. <laughs> oh that's sweet um yeah but i mean you bring up a good point and that is the mandalorian is finally coming back and this is something that oh man i i'm so excited bo katan is finally coming back. i'm finally gonna get my crease yeah. my my crease yeah. lore i'm getting mm. i'm getting um <laughs> clone wars era uh, Mandalorians back. I'm so excited. I can, yeah, I can too. tell, I can tell this is very important. <laughs> I'm very excited, but, um, it's been so long. I mean, I, I mean, I, I just can't believe that, you know, Bo-Katan first showed up in live action in 20, 2020. Yeah. It's been mm -hmm. over two years because we had Boba Fett in between that. And I just knew that we were going to have to wait that long. And people were like, no, 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 no. They'll get, they'll get Boba Fett into production and then they'll do the Mandalorian. I'm like, that's not how this works. They nope. have to get out of production for Boba Fett before they can go to the Mandalorian. So it's been a long time and I'm very excited. So. From what Yay. I read today, um, season four shouldn't be nearly as long of a wait. That's uh, already in pre-production. I mean, I, I assume that that's the case especially if they they aren't having i mean I, i've heard i've heard rumors of 
another installment of of Boba Fett, but I don't know if they would do that between season three and four. Maybe they'd do season three and four. What, what and I was reading today Fett. is there there's a possibility they're both in production right now. There is a uh, possibility of a Writers Guild strike this summer. Oh, great. And then that is going to be followed by a Director's Guild strike. So whether, you know, whether it's true or not, we never know. But from what I was reading today, they're really trying to get the series uh, pretty far into production in case that that does happen. Right. Well, yeah. never, uh, never a boring day as a Star Wars fan, is it? Never. Um, well, y'all, thanks again for for having me on to do this. Uh, this was really special. Uh, when will this uh, When will this be airing? I think we get it out pretty quickly. Don't, yeah, um, probably tomorrow. Probably comes out tomorrow. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, I'm gonna bounce, um, Jessica. We have a lot we should talk about. So I agree. Uh, are Are you? Do you operate through uh, Roll the Galaxy? Do you have your own Twitter handle? Or... I have my own Twitter handle. I'm I'm Dark Saber Light at Dark Saber Light. I used to have a podcast called Stories at by Dark Saber Light, and okay. um, that's that's kind <laughs> okay. of been put on hold. Here it is, but, uh... Satine Week. <laughs> I told you she's my girl. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, but but yeah, that's that's where you can find me and. Um, Thanks to all of our listeners. Really appreciate you tuning in. Sure that you all didn't expect to get a, you know, an hour and a half long conversation on politics and Star Wars, but I hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, make sure that you, you know, send us your thoughts on what you liked, what you didn't like, and um, you know, if there's any topics or guests that you'd like to like us to have on. And um, other than that, we've got the Mandalorian coming up. We've got. Uh, Bad Batch still going, and so we'll be here in the coming weeks to give you all of our thoughts on that. So have a great night, and may the Force be with you. Mm-hmm.